after a supernatural deliverance from Egyptian bondage, after God's people were taken out by a mighty hand from slavery, after Israel came out in freedom, after they received the law of God at Mount Sinai, after Israel marched up to the very edge of the promised land and then faltered and turned back in apostasy, after they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years while the unbelieving generation died, after they received the supernatural provision of manna from heaven, water from the rock, and shoes that didn't wear out, after the Lord parted the waters of the Jordan River and Israel walked into the promised land on dry ground, after the nation celebrated the sacraments for the first time, all the men having not been circumcised were circumcised, and then they celebrated Passover. After their first battle, when Israel had a smashing triumph over the fortress city of Jericho, after they came to the little town of Ai and endured a humiliating defeat there, after discovering that the cause for their defeat was sin in the camp, and they exercised covenantal church discipline upon Achan and his family, after returning to Ai, they win a complete victory, which brings us to tonight's narrative. I'm going to ask you to do a few things tonight. Roll up your sleeves and work. You know my conviction about preaching and hearing, that it's not just one person working up a sweat in the pulpit while other people are, are falling asleep in the pew, but that it's, it's a mutual exercise. That certainly my commitment is to explain and apply the word, but yours should be to hear, to follow, to deeply seek to understand and apply and that's going to take some work on your part tonight. Not only will you need an open Bible, you will need your Trinity Psalter hymnal in just a moment as well. And the other thing I, I want to encourage you is to take particular note of the place names. Tonight we'll be looking at several places in our text. Places are important in the Bible. The places are never named by accident. Our God works in time and space history and tonight we will be, our primary location will be in a place called Shechem, which sits between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. More on that in just a moment. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to hear his word. God, our Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to arrest our minds and our hearts, that you would prod our conscience, that we would see our need not just for the word in general, but for this text. Oh, Lord, you have inspired it and breathed it out. You've told us that this word will be profitable for instruction, for correction, for training in righteousness, and for doctrine. And so, Lord, instruct us now. Give us teachable hearts. Show us Christ in his work as justifier and sanctifier. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This may seem like an odd text to you, very removed from your own experience. But I will tell you, it's a glorious text. It's a, a scene where Israel is gathered some two to five million strong with lots of pomp and circumstance with all the officers of the nation. It's a covenantal text. It's a text that shows us the gospel. And maybe you just read it along with Pastor Anderson. You say, Carl, did I hear you right? Are you saying this is a gospel text? You know, one that speaks of Christ and his sacrificial work? Absolutely. What we're going to see in this text tonight is it distinctly shows us the gospel. It shows us the work of Christ, but it does more than that. 
It doesn't just show us Christ as Redeemer. It shows us how to go forward from receiving the free, finished work of Christ and how to live afterwards. As I said, it doesn't just show us Christ as justifier, but also as sanctifier. Now, you will need your copy of God's Word open to Joshua 8. But I'm going to ask you to look at several other texts a few times and do what we know is the biblical method of interpretation, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And let me give you just a tiny bit of history that will inform your understanding. If you look at our text, beginning in verse 30, Joshua 8, verse 30, we're told that Joshua comes and builds an altar in Mount Ebal. Now, just a tiny bit of trans transition if you've already been so sharp to look ahead and maybe you pulled our bulletin off the web and I hope you'll do that and you saw that we were going to read verses 30 through 35 and you look and thought, okay, I'm really going to do my homework. The last time I checked, it seems like Carl was in AI. Now we're several miles north of there up at Mount Ebal. This text takes place about 30, 40 miles away from AI. And so let me move you in your mind on the map where we are now in the promised land. After the victory at Ai, which is the second city Israel conquered in Canaan, Joshua marches the entire nation of Israel, two to five million strong, to this place. And that's where they come to this valley, the Valley of Shechem, between Mount Ebal on one side and Mount Gerizim on the other side. And they're not going there to engage in a conquest or a siege. There's not a city nearby. They're going there for a covenant renewal ceremony. And I want to propose to you what is happening here in our text is exactly what happens every Lord's Day when we gather at Woodford Presbyterian Church. Because what we do, what we should be doing when we come here, is renewing our covenant with God. And that's exactly what's happening here. But let me paint the picture for you of what's, what's going on physically, geographically. Israel has just marched up here to this valley that sits between two mountains. Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. And that area down in the valley between is called Shechem. And if you've read the Bible at any length, if you've read Genesis at all, you're familiar with this place called Shechem. Israel has come from fighting a battle against Ai to now peacefully standing in a valley. But I need you to understand exactly where Shechem sits in relation to these mountains. Hopefully somebody on your pew did this and they can explain it to the rest of you later. I'm hoping that at least your dads grew up watching John Wayne Westerns like I did in a sanctified home. And you'll get the picture. Dad can explain it to you later if you watched a John Wayne Western. Because this would happen in every single John Wayne movie. It was predictable. John Wayne and whoever was with him, they'd be going through a, a narrow canyon. And you would know by the background music the action that was about to happen. All of a sudden, up on the ridges on both sides would appear thousands of Indians heavily armed. And you'd think, John's got his work cut out for him today. He's going to have to whip 10,000 Indians today. And you'd get this picture of this, of this narrow valley going between these two ridges. That's exactly what you have here. Mount Ebal on one side, Mount Gerizim on the other, but very close together. In fact, the tops of those mountains come over the valley just like that. F.B. Meyer describes the valley of Shechem as a place where on the sides of each mountain they're hollowed out 
And the limestone strata is broken into a succession of ledges built into these mountains. And the appearance, F.B. Meyer says, is a series of regular benches into the mountains, creating a, a natural amphitheater in the mountains themselves. Hundreds of years later, when Francis Schaeffer visited the region, he called it God's own amphitheater because it has perfect and amazing acoustics. Schaefer said he went and tried out speaking on one side, speaking on the other side, standing in the valley, and he said a person on one mountain can easily hear a person on the other, and both can clearly what happens and what transpires in the valley. It's a perfect place for the ceremony that's about to take place because what needs to be able to happen is Joshua needs to be able to speak and all two to five million people packed in there need to be able to hear him but it's perfect acoustics. And especially the people standing on Ebal need to speak to the people on Gerizim, and the people on Gerizim need to speak to the people on Ebal and be heard. Why would this nation march up from Ai to this valley? Look at verse 31 in our text. We are told that they came to Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel. Again, in verse 33, we're told half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before. Israel doesn't come here randomly. They've come here under orders, reading Moses in the written word of God. They're coming here in obedience to the scriptures. <clears throat> A little more context before we get to the covenantal ceremony. I want you to see the covenantal continuity of God's ways. This place that they've come to, the Valley of Shechem. Israel is not coming to a strange place. They're coming to a place that's deeply rooted in their family and national history. They're visiting their family roots. Because you remember, these people are almost all, two to five million of them, are almost all, not all, there's a Rahab in the bunch and there's a few others, but they're mostly all the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. When they come into this valley, they're revisiting their history. And I want to show you what associations this place would have for them as they march into this valley. And you'll begin to see some of the covenant faithfulness of God and what his intention is for his people. Hundreds of years before our saga, and I'm, now is when I'm going to ask you to roll up your sleeves and go to work. Look at Genesis 12, but keep a finger in Joshua chapter 8. In Genesis 12, we read that Abraham comes to the land of Canaan, not knowing where he is going. And read in Genesis 12, verse 6 and 7. We read there, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. In other words, their great-grandfather's great-grandfather had been here before. That's where we are today, in Shechem, between Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And then we keep reading in Genesis 12. The Lord appeared to Abraham and looked very carefully at this word. It's a promise, a promise that needs to be fulfilled. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. There he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now think about this. God made a promise to Abraham right there in Shechem, right between Ebal and Gerizim, and he said, to your descendants, I'm going to give them this land. So Joshua marches 
his descendants. Several generations go by, marches them back hundreds of years later to Shechem. Here they are, in the same place where God had told their great-great-grandfather Abraham, I will give to your descendants the land. Now the entire nation of Israel, two to five million strong, is standing right there, their feet on the exact same dirt where Abraham had stood. What is it that they all must say? God is faithful. God keeps his word. God told our great-great-grandfather Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. And look, here we are. Our God keeps his promises. Notice something else that happens. Look at this incident in Genesis 12, 7, where their great-grandfather Abraham had been here. Notice what Abraham does. He builds an altar and sacrifices. He's not claiming to be there and to receive God's promises by right of good works or of deserving. He's claiming to be there because of God's grace. His need of a sacrifice, that's why he builds an altar and he slays a a spotless lamb there. His need of a sacrifice, his need of an atoning sacrifice is seen. And what do we see in Joshua hundreds of years later when the sons, the descendants of Abraham come into the land? What's the first thing they do? They build an altar. Now what you have is this ongoing covenant of grace from Abraham to them. They all know from Abraham down to Joshua's nation, they all know We are not here by our works. We are not receiving promises and blessings by our works. We are here by God's sacrificial lamb. They were all looking forward to Christ. This place in Shechem has a great history because not only was their great-great-grandfather Abraham there, but their great-grandfather Jacob had been there. Look at Genesis 33, and I want you to see how deeply rooted Israel is into this place. How they'd all been smacking their lips and saying, we can't wait to get to Shechem. That's where grandfather Abraham was. That's where grandfather Jacob was. When you get to Genesis 33, this place is rich in associations for Israel. Now you'll remember the saga. Just after Jacob escapes from his twin brother Esau unharmed, the one who he thought would kill him. After Jacob escapes from Esau unharmed, he comes to this place, to Shechem. The very same place where his grandfather Abraham had been promised by God the great promise. And look what we're told in Genesis 33:18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan where he came from Padan Aram. And he pitched his tent before the city and he bought the parcel of land where he pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel, or God the God of Israel. So now, as you see that Israel has historic familial roots in this very place, scroll the clock forward to Joshua's day. Two to five million strong Israelites. They march into Shechem, between Ebal and Gerizim. And already they're saying, Yeah, we're home. This is where we belong. God took our great-great-grandfather Abraham and he made a covenant with him and said to your descendants, I'll give this land. He took our great-grandfather Jacob and there Jacob built an altar and he named the name of the Lord and in faith he trusted in the living God. What do you expect these people will do when they come into the valley? Their great-grandfather Abraham covenanted with God and named the name of the Lord, trusted in him, built an altar, 
trusted in his sacrificial lamb. Their great-grandfather Jacob came here, built an altar, trusted in the name of the Lord, built an altar there and sacrificed a lamb. And what we're going to see is covenantal continuity. What we see is God's people, who are not a few scattered individuals here and there, they have a history. They're going to follow the pattern of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tonight, we stand in the same train. This is our family history that we're reading. Abraham is our father, we're told in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. Jacob is our father. These people are our forebears. We have the same God. We have the same covenant, the same altar, the same sacrificial lamb. Now look back to our text in Joshua 8. And notice what happens. <clears throat> Joshua 8 verse 30. When Israel comes into the valley of Shechem, the first thing Joshua does, we are told, is he builds an altar. Why? Because here's where the gospel is in this text. In building the altar, you'll notice that Joshua is careful to obey the law of God, careful to obey the commands of Exodus 20 and not apply any tool to the stones that he picked up on the ground. We're told in verse 31 that as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And so here's 80-year-old Joshua. He starts reaching down, the whole nation watching, perched up on the mountains, gathered around inside the valley of Shechem, and they're watching. Joshua's bending over, choosing stones, builds an altar that's at least three to four feet high. He doesn't try to make it beautiful with tools. He doesn't try to add his own workmanship. Why is that? Why did God say when you build an altar, don't use any human tools on it? So that no man would ever think that any human work was to be done, was to be associated with sacrifice. Lest sinners think as that lamb is placed on top of the altar and as it's slain for sinners, lest somebody think, but look at that altar. Isn't it a piece of handiwork? You know, I'm the best altar builder around. People want me to build altars because they're so attractive. I added something to God's appointed sacrifice. My altar, you know the beauty of it, the way I laid it out. And, and look, isn't that carving intricate? The man was to never think that he had anything to do with the altar. He simply picks up the stones that the Lord had placed there on the ground. He added nothing to God's lamb. God asked for a simple stone altar, not one that was decorated and designed by human hands. He didn't want any flesh to glory in his presence. It's not the beauty of man that made, that made this beautiful that gives the sinner forgiveness. It's the blood on the altar. And that's what Joshua does. Here comes the best part. Here's the gospel shouting at us in this text. Notice where the altar is. It's going to take a bit of careful study, so look very carefully. Rivet your gaze on your text in Joshua 8, verse 30. We're told Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Now, I know some of you didn't do well in geography. So don't get lost in there. there are, you have to make a distinction between two mountains, Ebal, Gerizim. And what you're going to see from the text is these were called the Mount of Blessing and Mount of Cursing. The Mount of Blessing was Gerizim. The Mount of Cursing was Ebal. Where did Joshua build his altar? He built it on, look carefully, Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. Why? Now you're going to have to work again. Look at Deuteronomy 11, and <clears throat> we'll be told. 
And you're going to see the gospel just trickling down to us in this text. We read in Deuteronomy 11, this is given by Moses long before he dies, long before Israel enters into the promised land. Moses is telling them everything to do when they go into the land. In Deuteronomy 11:29, look what Moses says. He says, it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Remember where the altar is set up? It's set up on Mount Ebal, on the Mount of Cursing. Not on the Mount of Blessing, but on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. The gospel is tucked right there into our text. Not only was that altar for burnt offerings and peace offerings to be there, look at what the people are to do on the Mount of Cursing. Look at Deuteronomy 27. I know now this is, you're saying, Carl, you just about reached your limit of text making us to look at. But look at Deuteronomy 27. We read in Deuteronomy 27 what the people of God are to do when they go into the promised land. And so when they do, in our text, they're just doing this in obedience to the written word. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 27.4. This was given to them long before they came into the land. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today. You shall whitewash them with lime. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. So when Joshua comes, everybody knows. They've read it in the word. As they march into the valley, Joshua, which one is Ebal and which one is Gerizim? Joshua has to tell them, that one's Ebal, that one's Gerizim. Joshua, which one is, remind us of the word, which one is the Mount of Cursing and which one is the Mount of Blessing? Mount Ebal, that's the Mount of Cursing. Gerizim, that's the Mount of Blessing. So Joshua, we're to take the altar and set it over there at the Mount of Blessing, right? No. Joshua has to tell them, you take the altar, you take the stones and we'll build the altar for the sacrifice on Ebal, on the Mount of Cursing. And Joshua says, quoting Deuteronomy 27, 7 to them, we go up there, we sacrifice, and we re rejoice there. Why? The reason they're to rejoice is because of the picture laid before them, namely of an atoning sacrifice for sinners. What's on that altar? Built by the hands of Joshua with no tool whatsoever. What's on that altar that's on Mount Ebal? A spotless sacrificial lamb. Do you see it on, there on the mountain of lawbreaking? On the mountain of cursing? That means there's hope. There's redemption. There's rejoicing. This altar is for lawbreakers. The altar is to show, yes, right in the place where we commemorate the curses of God upon lawbreakers, what goes there? An altar where there's a sacrifice slain for sinners. And it's not just, we're told in the text, burnt offerings. It's burnt offerings and peace offerings, which speak of restored fellowship with God. At the place of cursing, there's redemption for sinners. What a clear picture of the work of Christ. When we come to the cross, what do we see there? What is Calvary? It's the mount of cursing. But what is it for us? It's the place of redemption. It's the place of salvation. It's the place where there's hope for sinners. Now comes, and I hope you hold on tight because we're going to Turn the steering wheel hard. And you're going to say, 
What just happened? Now comes the important transition. Here's where many in our generation fumble. They don't get it right. They see the altar over there on Mount Ebal. They see that God provides salvation, free grace for lawbreakers. And here comes the important thing. What do you do after you receive saving grace? What do you do after you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Do you just spend the next 60 years saying, Hallelujah, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now I can live any way I please. Now, because I've been redeemed freely, there's no need for righteousness, holiness, no need for obedience. Not at all. Look back to Joshua 8, our text, and notice carefully what happens. Now, I'm going to take you back and forth between Joshua 8 and Deuteronomy 27, and so you'll need your finger placed in Deuteronomy 27. What happens? After the sacrifice on the Mount of Cursing, on Mount Ebal, after they're reassured by God, you're my beloved people, you've been saved by grace, saved by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, what does God say to them then? Does he say, hey, by the way, now that you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, just go live any way you please? A thousand times no. What does God do then? Look at Joshua 8, 32. After the sacrifice, we read these words. There in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he'd written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priest, the Levites who bore the ark of the covenants of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who is born among them. Half of them were in front of Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, he, that is Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There's not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua didn't read before the assembly of Israel. Let me explain what just happened. First things first, Joshua comes up on Mount Ebal, on the Mount of Cursing, he sacrifices, showing everyone as the smoke ascends from this altar. The smoke preaches the gospel to the whole nation. Everybody, even the people at the back, are straining to see. Did he place a lamb on there? Was it spotless? Is he burnt the lamb? Is it rising like a sweet aroma to the nostril of God? And everyone's saying, saved by a substitute. Saved by the blood of the lamb. Then Joshua proceeds to say, Now, as those freely redeemed by a sacrifice, let me tell you how to live as God's redeemed people. And so he reads them. Look at our text, Joshua 8.34. He reads them all the words of the law. And what I want you to see is it's a responsive reading. This is an astounding exercise because you have somewhere between a million and two and a half million people standing here and a million and two and a half million people standing here chanting antiphonally back and forth to one another the words of the law saying, yes, we will obey, and giving their thunderous amen to the law. Moses had written down a provision for what was to be said. And you need to get the full picture. And so look at Deuteronomy 27, and look at what the script was for this worship service, this covenant renewal. Moses has left instructions for the day so that they're not just making it up. They're obeying the written word. 
Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 27, 12. Here's how you're to do it. So Moses writes, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan. And he lists six tribes. There's, there's nothing left to chance. So all the people, when they're marching into the valley of Shechem, they know, okay, you're from the tribe of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, or Benjamin. You line up over here on Mount Gerizim. Six tribes over there. Moses then writes down and says, And these shall stand over here on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. And so first, get the picture. Joshua has already been on top of Ebal. They've had the gospel preached to them by this altar. They know that God atones for them by his sacrificial lamb, and he saves them by grace. Now what are they doing? Six tribes here, six tribes there. The Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing. Look at what God says to them in the script. Look at Deuteronomy 27, 14. The Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. What you see here, that's the first statement by the Levites, is a clue. What are they going to do? They're going to read the law of God to the people of God. They're going to read the moral law and the principles flowing from it. And what are the people going to do? Are they going to stand there like wooden Indians when the law is read? Are they going to look at one another and say, I wish you would hurry up and finish so we can get to lunch? What are the people going to do? Look at the next verse, Deuteronomy 27, 15. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And again, with the acoustics in that tunnel, it would have been like thunder. One million to two and a half million on this side, one million to two and a half on this side, shouting an amen that would bounce and echo off of these walls. The reading goes on. Read Deuteronomy 27. <coughs> the Levites read, <coughs> Cursed is the one who treats his father and mother with contempt. In other words, the fifth commandment. All the people shall say amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. In other words, property crimes are outlawed. All the people shall say amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. God is especially concerned for justice, <clears throat> especially for the weak and the oppressed. What does everyone say at that moment? Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Millions thunder back. Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he's uncovered his father's bed. In other words, a prohibition against all sexual immorality, especially incest. All the people shout, Amen. And it goes like on like this all the way through Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. In other words... The Levites are saying, but the one who doesn't give his amen to this, who just sits there and says, this isn't for me. I don't care about biblical obedience. I don't care about morality. Yes, I want God's free grace. I want God as justifier, but I don't want him as sanctifier. I don't want obedience. God says, cursed is the one who doesn't confirm all the words of the law. Now notice then what occurs. Turn over to Deuteronomy 28. This is the script that Israel must follow. The flip side comes because the other six tribes are on the Mount of Blessing for a reason. 
We read now shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord will, your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Here they come. Blessed you shall be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed you shall be in the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the blessings go on and on. Verse 6, blessed shall you be when you go in and when you come out. So we have the curses and the blessings. Now let me tell you what just happened. And this is something that we need to understand. These people's parents had done the exact same thing 40 years earlier. If we were to take the time to look back to Exodus 19, but I'm pushing my luck already as it is with you, their parents, when they'd been brought out by a mighty hand, their parents did the same thing. Their parents entered into a covenant, and they said in Exodus 19, all the Lord commands we will do. And they didn't. Why didn't these children of theirs just say, oh Lord, our parents did this. We believe in covenant theology. Come on, you delivered them. Ditto for us too. No. Every generation has to reconfirm their saving interest in a covenant with God. And I'll speak especially for just a moment to covenant children here tonight. Just because your parents are believers, just because your grandparents are believers and in covenant and know the grace of God, they've trusted in God's appointed sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. Don't sit back and say, well, you know, my parents, my grandparents, they have a saving relationship with Christ. They're in covenant with God. What was required of this generation? that they enter into covenant with God. Yes, it was based on the historical promise that had come down through the generations. Yes, they entered into the same covenant that their great-grandfather and grandfather and parents did. But they were required individually and personally to now own God as their God, to look up to that sacrifice on the Mount of Cursing that was slain for sinners, and to embrace the law of God for themselves as their instrument of sanctification. They had to affirm their commitment to faith and obedience. Look at the principle that's stated here. There are some in Christendom that will gnash their teeth at this. But the Bible Christian doesn't gnash his teeth. He embraces it. He loves it. He understands it. Look at the principle that's stated to us in our text in Joshua 8, verse 34. The principle is in verse 34, we're told Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings the cursings, according to all that's written in the book of the law. The principle there to understand as God saved people is the people who looked up at the sacrifice on Mount Ebal. Listen carefully. God blesses obedience. And he curses disobedience. Our culture, even the church, is so rampantly antinomian that they want to say God blesses obedience and he doesn't really care about disobedience. That's never the principle we see in Scripture. It's already been demonstrated to Israel in the case of Achan and the defeat at Ai that God curses disobedience and sin in the camp. This principle is fundamental to understanding the book of Joshua and indeed the Bible. 
You remember how the book of Joshua began in Joshua 1. When Joshua is told to obey the commands of God, then you will have good success. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1, Why does the good man prosper? Because he meditates in the law of God and obeys it. We're told in Psalm 19, In keeping your commandments there is great reward. In Isaiah 58, God promises a blessing for obedience to the fourth commandment. This principle goes on in the New Testament. In Ephesians 6, Paul's speaking to children of the new covenant. And he promises a blessing for obedience to children who obey the parents. This principle of blessing for obedience is shot through the scripture. And if you don't grab a hold of this as a believer, you will lead a miserable life. Our Reformation forefathers knew this and taught it. One of my favorite examples is Richard Sibbs, writing in 1639, preached a classic sermon entitled, Look to the Reward and Thus Obey. Our confession understands this. As a confessional church, we've enshrined this. This is what every elder, every deacon, every minister here believes. We write this in our confession. Look at your hymnal in page 930, just to show you one example. Page 930, and you see there what, again, every elder, every pastor, every deacon must vow and subscribe to. Look on page 930, section 6 under the law of God. We read, 196, it directs and binds them, that is, believers, to walk accordingly. The promises of the law in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. Do you hear what our confession says? It says the Spirit of God, when he comes into a man at conversion, when a man trusts in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, what does he do? The Holy Spirit indwells a man and makes him delight in obedience. And thus he is blessed. How do we apply this text to us tonight? I want to make two applications to you. First of all, the law of God is for all the people of God. All of them. Why do I press this? Because some feel like, well, obedience is good for those types of believers, but not for me. Carl, I'm a Christian. I belong to God. I'm just not into obedience. I really love justification, but I really don't like sanctification. I want you to look at our text. Who's hearing and amening all the law? Look at Joshua 8.33. All Israel. Who stands there and says, amen, full-throated shout, amen, as the commands are read, as the curses for disobedience are read? All the nation. And then look at the punchline in verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with all the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Do you hear what I'm saying? The issue of Yes, all the people of God have to look to the sacrifice on the mountain and understand they're saved by another. And then all the people of God, every last one of them, has to say, Amen. The commands of God are right and holy and good, and this is how I will live my life in gratitude for free grace received. All the law of God is for all the people of God. A second application. 
Believer, do you see how the gospel is everywhere in the scripture? Over and over again, you cannot escape the gospel of a lamb slain for sinners. Even in the middle of this book, in the middle of this militaristic book that's about the taking of land, we can't escape from it. The gospel's on every page. Look at what Joshua's first duty is in this ceremony. He has to go up and the first duty of the day before he can show the people of God how to obey is to point them to a savior, the slain lamb. He has to over and over again take them to the altar, prefigure for them the Lord Jesus Christ who is the lamb for sinners slain. My friend, do you understand how pivotal and constant the picture of Jesus is throughout the scripture? Thus, we can never escape, we can never outgrow this principle that any of our obedience, any of our love for the law must flow out of gratitude for the lamb who was slain for sinners. Any of our obedience has to flow out of happiness in rejoicing that Christ has died for us. My friends, may we never get tired of the gospel of the lamb. God have mercy upon us if we do. And may we out of gratitude for free grace received, gladly obey his every command. Let's pray. Father, how we praise you that we too have an altar. We too have a sacrifice that's been slain, the perfect son of God. How we praise you that he has made a full atonement for sinners. And we praise you that none of our works have been added to that. For Lord, we have no works to add. All ours are filthy rags. But Lord, we pray, just as your children of old in the valley of Shechem, we too now would, out of gratitude for the grace we've received, it would be our delight, our highest honor to obey you, to delight in obedience to your commands. How we thank you that tonight we know from the lips of your dear son that your commands are not even burdensome, but they are a light yoke to bear. We pray that you would take our hearts that you would point us there to renew our covenant with him, to look to Christ alone in faith and repentance, that you would do the same for our children, that there would be no child here who supposes or thinks that he or she can coast to heaven on the coattails of their parent. Lord, take hold of our children's hearts. Show them their need to make this covenant anew. And, oh, Lord, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who love obedience out of gratitude for grace received. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name.